I'm Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Conversing. Delighted to welcome again as a guest on Conversing, an author and speaker that many of you already know, Beth Moore. Beth is a very dynamic teacher, and her conferences uh, take place really around the globe. She's written a number of best-selling books and Bible studies, and she's the founder of Living Proof Ministries, which is based in Houston, Texas. I will say a bit more about her work as we go on with the interview, but Beth, welcome. I'm just so grateful that you're willing to have this conversation. Well, I tell you, the pleasure is mine, Mark, and I want to say something to you because I've had the privilege of being on a number of podcasts here recently because that is part of these days of a book coming out. And I want you to know, I've waited till this point to say that, Mark, yours is one of my very, very favorite podcasts available. I just love it. I love it. And I think it's because you have such a wide variety of guests on. Mm -hmm. So I want you to know, I'm one of your listeners. (laughs) I tune into your podcast very, very often. Well, I'm grateful. That's very, very kind of you to say. Thank you for that. I do think it's a very wonderful means of trying to invite people that are not in direct personal community together around a common conversation, to listen in on conversations they may not have opportunity to have, or conversations about ideas that they don't know quite how to explore with people. And certainly having the chance to talk to you, Beth, is one of uh, the great gifts of this. So thank you again for agreeing to do it. Tell us about this new book. Let's start there. It's a book that, uh, for the listeners, I wanted to say is entitled Chasing Vines, Finding Your Way to an Immensely Fruitful Life. I think one of the things that most people would say about you, Beth, is that your way of being in the world and the kind of teaching and leadership that you provide is really all about life and flourishing. So these words being brought together feel to me like the most natural thing in the world. But it is interesting to choose a word like chasing vines, which I don't think is the usual combination of words. So, So tell us about that. I have two daughters, Mark, that are 37 and 40. And they are, you know, it's a wonderful thing to have accidentally raised your best friends. You know, you don't know that when you're raising them. You certainly don't know it in high school. Uh, You're not sure of it even in their 20s, but as they get into their 30s, the blessing that has come to us and strictly by the grace of God to Keith and I is that these wonderful young women not only were our daughters, but also our friends. And for me, my very best friends and closest uh, confidants and compadres. And I had wanted, we have talked for years about going on a bucket list trip together, that just somewhere, just the three of us, just myself and my two daughters. And just so that, that no one thinks that we left Keith out, he is not a traveler. He's the kind that would just rather hand over his wallet and go, go for it. <laughs> Leave me in Texas. This is where I want to be. You girls have fun. Right. And so we had been planning for years and tossed around where we would go. And we finally came down to, it's going to be Italy. And we decided that all the stops on, we, we chose 11 days, uh, uh, 10 on the road, and we decided, okay, every stop has to be somewhere none of us has ever been. So, and we traveled Europe on quite a lot of ministry, so we were really having to dodge it. And so we didn't plan our stops. Our good friend who's a travel agent did. And for me, I guess life moves at such a pace that I don't really think Ahead of time, I'll think about when I'm going to speak somewhere, Mark, I'll think about, okay, my message, getting my message ready, but I don't necessarily think about the setting I'm going to be in, like the city and and how I wish I could go to the museum or anything like that. I just think in terms of what is my responsibility there. But for this, I'd really not thought through our stops. I'd entrusted those to our good friend, but as she would have it, Our second stop, we started in Florence, and we just wore that city out and had a blast and went second to rural Tuscany in a small inn 
in the middle of hills as far as I could see mm-hmm. of nothing but vineyards. Right. And it was the most spectacular thing I'd ever seen. Nothing could have gotten me ready for it. And my Melissa said it so beautifully. She loves photography. And she said, you know, Mother, I have never, ever been attracted to pictures of Tuscany and the vineyards because she said they never looked real to me. And the reason they don't look real is because they don't look real. It doesn't look like you could possibly be seeing reality in this thorny earth and amid all these thistles. Here is this gorgeous, gorgeous sight from every single point of view. And it just so happened we were there at the end of the harvest season when the harvesters were going through right. clipping the last of the clusters. It would have taken an imbecile to miss it. If you knew anything about the scriptures, and I'd loved, how many years have any of us that have loved the Gospels been taken with John 15? I, I don't know how many times I'd said verse 8 along the years in ministry. It is to your Father's glory that you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples, Jesus said. And, you know, how many times, and yet I was staring straight in the face of it. And I I tell you what I love. My favorite thing to do, and this you would find this in virtually every major book and project and Bible study that I have ever done, you will see the same thing. I love to go in with a tight focus on whether it's that book of the Bible, whether it is that concept about that chapter, whatever it may be, I'm also going to want to move out, move into a panoramic view of what does it mean in the backdrop of the whole of Scripture. I want to see it right in its context, but then I want to pull that camera lens out. And there is nothing, nothing I love more. And maybe because I started my whole fascination with Bible study, where the Lord unlocked it for me was in the study of the tabernacle, because it put the Old Testament and New Testament together in such in such a stunning display that I never could get over the brilliance of God. And so it was that kind of thing. I pulled the lens out and started looking. Okay, I want to look at every time vines, vineyard, grape, grapevines, right. any form <laughs> right. of wine, anything mm-hmm. whatsoever, raisins. I don't care. If it has to do with grapes, I want to know where it is. And right. I studied it from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason why I named it Chasing Vines, that's what I did. I've said over and over, if you literally swung from the vines through the Bible, it would take you from cover to cover like Tarzan. You could just like swing from one vine to the next and you'd make it all the way to Revelation. So it was a blast. Right, 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 right. So it was was what your doing as your own curiosity, your own fascination with the Bible, your own desire to get the core of what this powerful image and theme is that runs all the way through the Bible. It is an amazing image. I will say, just by my own background, I was raised in apple-growing territory in central Washington. Ah. And so much of that area is now heavily, heavily grape-growing. And so this terrain that I've seen as a child growing up in that area, principally through the lens of orchards, I'm now seeing it through the lens of vineyards. And while there's plenty of orchards still, there's so many vineyards, and it is a remarkable thing to be in a vineyard, having lived also in Northern California and having spent many happy days in the vineyard area of Napa and Sonoma Valleys. Those are amazing areas, as you know, and an opportunity to get a taste of this close at hand. And and literally, literally even. Mm -hmm. It it is such fun. And Truly, the area of the country that you're talking about in Washington and Oregon, these are spotlight areas now. The viticulture world is very focused on that part of the United States because it is putting it on the map for its vineyards. So I have been, Mark, I don't know how many vineyards I've been to at this point now in the course of this last couple of years. And every single time I'm completely mesmerized. Yeah, it is amazing. And I think As you know, and your book reflects this, one of the most interesting things agriculturally about a vineyard is the way that the fruit itself actually cooperates with the vine in a very distinctive way so that the regionalism of the vines planted in certain places is deeply contextualized while it's also 
general, right? So you have both kinds of things always going on, which from a gospel perspective is a very incarnational, contextualized vision of of what's happening. It's really, really powerful. Oh, it is. I had to finally just simply end the book. Mm -hmm. I finally got to a place where I thought, you know, you're at the end. You're at the end of your time. (laughs) You you put a period on the last sentence, you're done. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, I never got to the end of the metaphor. Right. It just kept going. Mm -hmm. Even the transformation that takes place from the grape to the wine, that truly such a chemical transformation has taken place Mm -hmm. in the long life of that fruit. It's still alive inside that bottle. It's just incredible. Right. So he has me for life on this. It just, (laughs) it was, I, I was just ruined. Is there anything, just as a contrast to that, I'm just curious, can you think of another image that's not about vineyards and grapes, et cetera, that you would say is the same in its pervasive presence in the Bible? Or, or for you, does it just now stand out head and shoulders? Of course, redemption. Yes. Of course, dwelling place. Right. The whole idea is, is so fascinating mm-hmm. that God is seen as dwelling there in the garden in, yes. in Genesis, and then it ends with us. And our dwelling place is, his dwelling place is with us and ours is with him. And that the whole thing has come full circle. Garden, gardening, the ocean, the waters, Mm -hmm. the parting of the waters. Mm -hmm. It, to me, it's been endless and Mm -hmm. it shows the beauty between the Testaments and what a shame it is to limit our studies to one or the other. I feel like the most fortunate person on earth that instead of being called by God to be a topical Bible speaker or teacher, that I had this privilege by God's grace, Mark, that I have just gotten to study all over it, that I've studied the old as much as I have the new, the new as much as I have the old. Mm -hmm. And to see it all together, to see the way it does interconnect Mm -hmm. is just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. You know, they say about music that the thing that makes uh, music most pleasurable and powerful emotionally is the the overtones, not just the notes. And so it's the resonances of the wood or the room that the orchestra or group might be playing in or the sound of amplified instruments as well. And in spaces where it's the overtones, not just the pure note quality. And when you're describing the Bible in the way that you are, I think that exactly what is happening, right? It's the overtones of all of these different images and texts and ideas that are at play together. And by studying both Old and New Testament as richly as you have, you end up having so many overtones that are crossing back and forth and and reinforcing and strengthening the others. It's really, really a great image, I think. Oh, I have so loved it. I have yet to tire of it. So when you got into this image and you began to think about your ministry, I have a sense that this book is written in a certain way as a kind of gathering up of decades of public ministry and trying to then say, okay, so what do I see as the landscape of, of, as it were, the lives, the joys, and the troubles? And then what do I see in this image that is a compelling clue to how to understand what a life of flourishing in a world of joy and beauty, but also pain and sorrow and anguish. How do those things all come together? And you landed in this particular metaphor. So for those who haven't yet read the book, please tell us a little bit about maybe one or two top of the line issues that for you began to really be particularly nourishing and helpful. I'd love to do that. There are so many times that I wish I could take a survey of every other teacher in the body of Christ, my spiritual gifting, because I'd love to know if this is consistent, if it goes with this gifting. But for whatever reason, Mark, I may have said this to you the last time we had the joy of talking. For whatever reason, I am obsessed with other people making it. I don't just want to make it. I want I want us all to make it. Right. I don't just want to flourish or see my household flourish or see my church flourish. Somebody asked me just recently at a Q&A, what is it that would keep you awake? And I sat there for a second and I looked at the audience and I said, you, of course, because I long for people to understand that while we may look 
at a skewed version of gifting and the world through social media. And even before that, goodness, it didn't take social media to think that only certain people were really gifted by God and really used by God. But it's done nothing but exaggerate our sense that that is true when actually the truth is every single person Every single Jesus follower, every single person within whom the Holy Spirit dwells is enormously gifted by God and called to bear much fruit. And that circumstances all in the world, a difficult circumstance can do. This is a major factor in the message. All in the world, a difficult circumstance can do is add to the fruit. And Mm -hmm. I'll get to that in just a moment. The first thing I would want someone to hear, my earliest takeaway you know, how could I be this age and this not really occur to me, but I hope somebody else has a moment of revelation here that it occurred to me so strongly and watching the way I had to look at God as gardener. So this starts all the way in the beginning of creation and him planting a garden for Adam, all of the terminology that is used. And I realized by the time we look at revelation and he's got fruit bearing every month and you're thinking, why on earth? He could just like have the fruit sitting there in baskets. Why grow it? Mm -hmm. And one of the major early takeaways for me, Mark, I want somebody to get this, is that God likes watching things grow. Why that makes a big difference to me is because he could have just, when I was born of the Spirit, I could have matured instantly. He could have done that with any of us. But the fact is, just as surely as any of us would not take the toddlerhood away from the babies we've loved, be it a niece or nephew, a a little brother, sister, a neighbor, whoever it may be. It doesn't have to be our own child. We wouldn't take away watching that child learn to walk, watching that child learn to ride a bike for anything in the world. But somehow we think that we were supposed to instantly be grown. And why this makes a big difference to me is I have this strange and often painful experience of having been out there where I could be quoted as far as 30 years ago, as if I had just said it yesterday. I hear these things all the time. And and do I wince? Oh, are you kidding me? Yes. Some of those things, I might think, well, you know what? It was the truth. I don't know. I wish I'd known a better way to say it. Other things I would go, you know, I I no longer even feel that way. Other things, it was just like, ah, I wish I had thought of a better way to put that. I should have framed it differently. I should have had disclaimers with that. And especially, you know, with social media and just seeing all the talk as if it was yesterday, one of the gifts that this project gave me that I hope to treasure the rest of my life, and I want someone to let this really sink into them, is that God did not despise that I was serving at the limit of my knowledge and capability. I was being as faithful as I knew how to be with what I knew. And I say this with a smile on my face. I was trying. And there's a value in that of just going like, you know what? He loved me. And I want to say that to some other leader that's looking back over the course of it. Because, Liz, if you're not there now, say you're 30 and listening to uh, Mark and I. Well, God willing, you will be 60. You will be 70. And you also will look back and think, wow, I surely might have done that differently. But what if you also knew that God did not despise that? Right that actually it was part of the process. He could have done it another way. And, you know, he knows we're seeking him. He knows we want to do his will. We, we aren't just trying to make all these mistakes. And so there was beauty in that, that he enjoyed it. He probably winced, but he knew he was going to grow me. He knew he was going to grow you. And something is precious about that. It made me appreciate and embrace not just, the moment of what I've learned since yesterday, but the fact that I had a a great deal of difficulty (laughs) getting it together, and I still am. So what? So what? Right. Well, I think what you're saying is, Beth, just such a transformative thing to not only understand, but actually to allow to be a grace in our lives rather than otherwise, when it's often almost a kind of invisible taunting inside that we say, I just wish I could get it. What kind of fool was I that I didn't understand it better than I wish that I did, but I didn't, but there I am. And then, as you say, to be eternally convicted of this because of the gift of social media is a problem. It reminds me also of the just the 
that's built into the image of chasing vines, which is the essential role of time itself. Yes. The time is of actual value to bring about real change. Jeremy Begbie, who's a theologian that I greatly admire, who's a musician, talks about the essential role of time in music, for example. You can't experience Beethoven's Ninth at three times the speed at which it's meant to be played. You can't no. just speed it up and call that Beethoven's Ninth. That's not Beethoven's Ninth. That's, oh, you're so that's right. something else. And, and in that case, it's like, oh, it has speed built in, but it actually strips it of its value, which is why learning to walk, learning to ride a bike, all those early memories. I got a, a video from a friend this weekend who has a, about a week old little granddaughter. And he took this about minute long video of just all the apparent feelings that were going through her for one minute, right? Just and she's just at that, at that age where her face is super expressive and has all these animated things that to our eyes, at least as adults, look like different feelings, right? She's trying to make sense of the world. Like she's working as hard as she possibly can, but she's a week old. So let's give her some time. Um, <laughs> let's, let's at least, you know, give her two weeks. Um, and, and in any case, it's just the story of this theme of allowing ourselves to be able to grow and not thinking that we have to be some part that we're not. And not being shamed. Right. Because uh, we didn't do it overnight. Right. I think that there is such a gift. I don't know why it is that we can so easily extend grace to someone else, but not ourselves, Mark, yes. not ourselves. We should have always done it better, been better at it, said it better, written it better. Right. And, you know, I look back at my earliest writings and I have so many exclamation marks. I mean, I was just <laughs> overexcited about everything. I want to sort of be a little bit embarrassed about that, but at the same time, it's like, no, there's something about that that is fairly precious. Right. Absolutely. You're alive to that moment in that image and God's spirit <laughs> yes. speaking to you. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about, as you were doing this work and you're operating in a real world where you're fully aware of all the challenges that this is both seeking to address, but all the challenges that are the test of what it is that you're writing. What were some of the places in using and exploring this image that were the hardest to kind of work out? One of my very biggest concerns for people is that they will give up and consider that all fruitfulness has been completely disrupted or hijacked instead of recognizing that they are being pruned. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge concept in the book because one of the things that we learn about the grapevine is that actually it does not flourish under great conditions. Mm -hmm. If you've ever heard the saying, stressed vines produce the finest wines or the yes. best wines, yes. it, it is true. It is true. And one of the earliest things that I learned on the trip in Tuscany, this was what had me. I might have gotten by without having to write on it had it not been that our taxi driver told us in the thickest Italian accent you can imagine. She said, the grapes, she said, they love the rocky soil. Mm -hmm. And they do. They, for whatever reason, whereas another kind of crop needs just very, very good, if not perfect circumstances to be at its best. Yes. It's not true for the grapevine. Mm -hmm. It needs to be stressed and that it really only reproduces grapes when its survival is threatened, when mm -hmm. it feels like it's not going to make it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, Mark, it just produces leaves. Mm -hmm. Like if it's going well, it's just like leaves, leaves, leaves. And I don't know why I picture, I just picture Instagram. <laughs> We're just all leaves, all leaves, all leaves and no fruit. Mm -hmm. It's not until the grapevine thinks, uh-oh, I may not make it. It's a reproductive process. That's right. what's happening is it's going, I better reproduce so that something survives here. Yes, yes. And so from that comes the grape. Mm -hmm. And then in the pruning process, one of the things I suggest to them is that pruning can feel a lot like killing. You can think, mm -hmm. you know, the Lord's killing me. Right. Because if, if you've ever seen anybody do it, I, I got a vine about a year ago. It's a, a, literally an Italian vine. I got it in the States. It was given to me, but it originates in Italy. And I am now at the point after finally watching it grow and get X amount of inches tall, I'm about to have to cut it. Yes. And it's like, this seems so wrong. Yes. It just yes. seems so wrong because you can think honestly, I thought God brought me here and it seems like he left me here. He gave me vision. I followed him here. And now it seems like I'm going in reverse instead of going forward. Mm -hmm. And that to me 
is enormous, is that facing that growing can look a lot like shrinking. Right. And we can think, uh-uh, this can't be flourishing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm honestly, I'm going in reverse. And it just so happened that while I'm in the process of this, I honestly got to experience this because I'm, you know, I'm learning about this, yes. but I just experienced it. Because I truly came to a point a couple of years ago in my outspokenness that I got outspoken enough to where I thought to myself, you have just honestly blown up your ministry. You've blown it up. You've killed it. Not only was I convinced that I had killed it, I didn't care. Have you ever honestly been so beside yourself and so frustrated and astonished at things that were going on around you and what you were seeing that you thought, you know, okay, not only am I done, I don't even care that I'm done. Right, right. I'm I'm happy to be done. Yes. That's where I was. And Mm. I would have told you, we began centering very much on Houston because I would have told you this is over nationally. Mm -hmm. It's over. This has now blown to such a degree that we better minister right here in our own community, which we'd always done to some extent. But the oddest thing about it is that the more we went face-to-face, one-on-one, started opening the doors of our ministry so that we could pray for people, started thinking small, the more God grew us in areas that we had never reached people, mm, wow. groups that, of people that we've never ministered to. And I wasn't wrong about, you know, I didn't think I was. I was watching people walk away. I was watching the events shrink. I was watching it happen. So I was not making that up and wasn't over-dramatizing it. But what he did instead was change how he was reaching and who he was reaching. Right. And so in that strange sort of way, I was living that out, that yes. pruning process of being cut back in order to grow. And not just, I don't want somebody to misunderstand. This growth is quality. Yeah. What you learn about viticulture is that they're not just going for the most grapes. They're going for the best grapes. Right. I mean, those clusters, that they may be profuse, but if they're partially rotted, they're not ripening correctly, whatever. I mean, they clip those things and they go straight to the ground. Right. And it's just like, wow. So it's not to be measured in numbers. Right. But fruitfulness, just flourishing in him. Right. Well, again, growing up in the apple growing area, thinning apple trees every summer in order to allow the fruit to grow more abundantly and more in quality and size is based on the same thing. There's limited resources. Let's make sure that we're using the resources to nourish and develop the best of the fruit that we can. And I think that's a great insight and a very, very important part of how this grows. I'm Mark Laverton. You're listening to Conversing, a production of Fuller Studio. Just for the sake of listeners who might not know, I think that what you're referring to when you talk about your outspokenness is some of the statements that you began to make about your concerns for the way that both gender and sexual abuse has affected and been such a huge and negative part of women's lives. Yes. And do you want to just say a little bit more about that for people who may not have followed that story? Yes, I will, because this, for anyone interested in this, I probably was at the time that you and I shared that podcast, it was the most outspoken I had been. I just was at the point where I was ready to say a little more than I'd been saying. So uh, certainly someone that wants to hear more detail about it might also listen to that one. But in a nutshell, I've been accused a number of times of sort of entering the political arena. And I've said so many times, oh, no, I didn't. My concern is the church. My concern is how the body of Christ operates and how I operate in it, what quality I'm bringing to it, my own dealing with the log in my own eye and dealing with my own inconsistencies and my own mess. And I've had plenty of it. But what I saw happen uh, several years ago is that we began in such numbers in this nation. I saw such idolatry of nationalism and such a display of misogyny in my thing over and over again was that this was coming out of our own Christian atmosphere, our own communities, our own leadership. Right. 
And right. I felt like we're selling our souls here. What, yes. what are we doing? How could we have turned topsy-turvy like this? What are we doing here? And it caused as much, this couple of years, I'm still not out of it, but it's been as much of an existential crisis. I'm just going to use that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, use, I use it loosely, of course, but not where Christ was concerned, not where my faith was concerned, but certainly where the church was concerned. Right. It was earth-shaking to me. It mm-hmm. really was an earthquake to me of trying to hold on tight and having given the benefit of the doubt in so many areas that this was all about Scripture and going, whoa, this is not all about Scripture. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is about power. Right. It is about advantage. It is right. about privilege. And mm-hmm. it was extremely hard for me to navigate and still very much on the journey. But I don't, at least now, I feel like it's not an uncommon journey, mm-hmm. that I'm not on it by any stretch alone, Mark. Right, right. A lot of people are taking this journey uh, right now and just trying to figure this thing out and what following Jesus looks like in today's world and culture. What does it look like? How much does it bleed into all of the areas of whether it's politics or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. whatever industry mm-hmm. it may be. But right. it, we're all having to navigate a lot and doing it all out in public platforms because of social media. Right, right. Well, and this is the week, of course, in which Harvey Weinstein has received his 23-year yes. sentence. And he's often identified as the case in which, in a way, the Me Too movement really sprung powerfully, most pervasively, probably onto the headlines. But what you're talking about is that phenomenon, but also that phenomenon played out inside the life of the church. Inside the life of the right. church. And in families, in churches, yep. in church staffs, the structures. By the time yeah. we let the secular world, Hollywood, for crying out loud, outdo us in handling, in going to bat for the abused and for the misused, by the time they are showing us up, we have completely derailed our understanding of the gospel. Yes. And that is exactly what we watched happen. Yes. Because we're like, wait a second, we ought to be the first ones jumping in there to protect the abused and the hurting instead of sheltering the perpetrators and abusers. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about our eyes being open to our need of awakening. We are truly there. And, you know, I'll tell you this. I'm also not cynical in that I do think the Lord has got us by the skin of our necks right now. I do think we are at a time in our world and our nation where we are going to have to cry out in order to make it with any sense of integrity with the gospel in our day. Absolutely. I think that is the gift of the challenges that are giving and being presented to us. It is a calling of genuine authenticity. So taking that journey that you just described about women and gender abuse and sexual abuse and so forth, and the way that it had permeated and does still permeate the church in various ways, take us now back through your own experience to the vineyard and say, in light of the image of the vineyard, what was happening in the life of the church that allowed these issues to be so buried and even purposely, if not systemically, buried in the name of a fruitful ministry? You know, we see it even, of course, displayed in such an obvious manner in the major prophets in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. where God, through these prophets, through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, is calling out the shepherds for not taking care for exploiting the flock. And that's what we're seeing. We're watching what happens, the kind of rotten fruit, the kind of sour fruit that comes forth when the whole idea of how the gospel spreads is derailed and it's hijacked. One of the things we talk about 
in the book, I love that you brought up time, and I love that you brought it up even in the context of music. Time is one of the most critical elements in every formula that has to do with fruitfulness. Right. You can't get away from it. You, there is no such thing as producing instant fruit. It just does not happen, and it's so intriguing, Mark. And I'm not saying that it's intentional. It may not be, but it's so very interesting that it takes three years. That Remember, he gives this teaching. He tells his disciples this the night that he is going to be in just no time at all. So let's say a couple of hours at most, he will be arrested. Right. And within what they would consider a day, you know, from darkness to light is how the Hebrew day goes. In the course of that day, that 24 hours, he would give his life the cross for us. And this is the teaching that he's giving. He's telling them, you are going to produce much fruit, and this is how you do it. You abide in me. Even if you're not going to see me, he's just told them that in 14 and in 16, the chapters that are right around mm-hmm. the teaching of John 15, he's told them, this is how the Holy Spirit's going to work. This is how this thing is going to go. Others will not see me, but you're going to see me because I'm not just going to be beside you. My spirit is going to be inside you. All this is coming down. And Do you know that in the course of growing a vine, that fruit does not become viable until three years? It's got to go through three seasons. And it's so interesting. Is that intended here that they have been with him in his public ministry for around three years, and now he is sending them forth to bear much fruit? I, I don't know, but it's so coincidental as to be extremely intriguing. But one of the things that we talk about, we actually do a little bit of a formula early on in the first third of the book, that one way to tell, you can't just say, well, if it's a good thing, if it's for noble purposes, then it's always going to produce fruit. That's not true. You have to give it time. For instance, one example I use, Mark, is that I thought, well, I want to do everything I possibly can to make sure that there's no hindrance to God using me when I speak. And so what I'm going to do, now God did not tell me to do this. He did not convict me of sin over it. I didn't get a word from God in any way over it. I just decided that in order to make sure that I was in the best possible condition when I went for an event, I would fast throughout the entire event. So it would just be no food from the meal before it started until it was over. And so I would do my own events because these would be the ones that would be the most work. So I would stop eating completely at noon on a Friday, and I would not eat until Saturday evening or Saturday after it was over. And I thought, this is what is going to honor God. What is not noble about that? What is not noble about fasting? Fasting is a noble thing. It's a godly thing. We're told that certain things of the darkness are not going to come out without prayer and fasting. Why would that not be exactly the thing to do? Only what happened was there are people that fast for 40 days. Why in the world would I not have been able to be successful at 24 hours? Well, Mark, I went on with this for years, years. Mm. My blood sugar, I would be shaking so badly by the time I got to the end of the conference (laughs) because I was speaking multiple times. And I put everything I've got into it. I'm not going to take anything home with me from that group. Right. Anything, I promise you, I don't care if it's 200 or 2,000 or 20,000. I'm going to give all of them everything I've got. I'm going to. And the last time, the final straw that broke the Campbell's back was that I literally blacked out speaking in the third and final session mm. until I had to hold the podium And I don't think the audience ever had any idea, but I held the podium until the light would come back on again, you know, in my vision. And afterwards, I got a word from God, all right, it was eat, eat. And, you know, I come up with that for myself. Good thing. I mean, there's nothing that's not good about fasting, but it bore poor fruit. It was not the time to do it. Mm -hmm. Not while I was giving everything I had. So we do this formula of this practice plus time causes what kind of fruit? Right. Did it cause good fruit or did it cause bad fruit? When I tried to police everything, my, I tried to be my husband's Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I was just going to police everything we watched in our home, every song my kids heard. Well, you can imagine how well that went. Right, right. It was disastrous. The right. more I tried to control Keith's mouth, the more, the more he felt the need to cuss right. because he couldn't help himself. You know, he would tell me always, when Keith is trying to do a throwdown with me, it's always going to be King James. Always. And he said, you, he said, all you're doing is you're causing a war in my members. He would say it over and over again. Over and over. So it was just like, it was a mess. It just didn't work. And so police, I, you don't know. I just, that, I don't live by that anymore. I cannot police 
every single right. thing we watch, every single thing. No, no. At some point, I just had to, you know what, Lord, we really need you around here. We're really a mess. <laughs> right. And right. so here, have at it. We're the perfect place for you to work because we need a lot of mm-hmm. help. Yeah, it's a great image. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's turn to one final area before our conversation comes to a close. Around the world and the United States, in different places in in the country in different ways, there's just this raging fallout related to the coronavirus. So let's go in light of that back again to this book and say, so we live in a world where for coronavirus reasons and for 10,000 other reasons, there are people every day that are living really on the edge of survival and in any case on the anxiety of being on the edge of survival and that for all kinds of reasons, medical, economic, psychological, et cetera. What does your book have to say? It doesn't have to be the answer to every problem. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just meaning if this book is going to speak into places of anxiety, fear, or, or ill health, what does flourishing mean in, in those circumstances? Oh, I, I would love to speak into that. I've been thinking about it so much Mark, because I tell you, it's not very often that the whole globe, the part of the globe that is plugged in to news that is aware of what's happening is honestly focused on the same thing. It doesn't happen very often. We can probably think of only a few times in our life that the thing that is threatening us is also threatening much of the world. Pandemic is just not a circumstance we will see many times in a lifetime. And we're looking at it right now. And one of the things that I've thought constantly about over the last couple of days is that we have to know as the people of Christ as servants, as those who are called to be salt and light, that he has been extremely deliberate about which generations are alive on this planet at this time in this climate. And man, we are so responsible for making sure that we're before God in our responses, that we are not driven by panic, but are driven by preparedness and by calm, by being informed and all of these things. I mean, if we have ever been on, it is now. And one of the messages of the vineyard, like so many of the, if you think in terms of parables, that when he's using the known to teach us the unknown over and over again, Most of the time, Jesus spoke in metaphors that were out in the elements, and very rarely was it indoors. We see the the woman that is sweeping out her house, but Mm -hmm. seldom is it indoors. It's usually out in the open cathedral, as writers have talked about, as certainly Wendell Berry has talked about, out there in the open air. And we are in that cathedral now. We've hidden our lives in. We think we've built these shelters We think we've locked ourselves away from all the elements of the world where our predecessors, our great-grandparents were truly subject to the elements. We think somehow in all our intelligence and our growing sophistication, we have sheltered ourselves from all of this, and we have not. It was an illusion. We see that in all sorts of circumstances. We see that in weather events, and we see that right now in this event. And one of the things I don't know I'm not expecting, Mark, for this to be encouragement. I'm expecting this to be just truth, that when it comes to something like the metaphor that Jesus spoke from in John chapter 15, the vine and branches, it happens to be, and you see it time and time again, that the worst of conditions can be right for the best of fruitfulness. And unfortunately, there's just nothing we can do about the fact that this is the way it tends to be, that the purification to the church, the time when she's most going to get her head on straight and be connected to her head, which is Christ, the time that we're going to be most aware and we're going to be most crucified to our own agendas is going to be in a time of extreme need. This is when desperation... not romanticizing it, but is this strange gift for this time that we are forced to look up instead of in. And God, where are we here? What is our place here? What is our message here? And to know that one of the ways that the gospel stands apart from so many of the philosophies of the world is that it was honestly through suffering that 
the obedience of Christ was made completely perfect to the resurrection, that we do have this thing of unless this kernel of wheat drops to the ground, it's not going to bear the same fruit. And I'm not just talking about, of course, God, please help us deliver us from the sentence of death where any of this is concerned with the virus that we're dealing with. Please don't anyone misunderstand me to think that I'm romanticizing. God, please deliver us. But what I'm saying is that it is in a time of this angst and suffering that we can see that the gospel, it has always, always been in that suffering, something beautiful rises out of those ashes. And we have been so unfocused, so self-focused. And man, we will either see some refining in some of this. We are truly in a fire. We're either going to see some refining in this, or we're going to see some burning down And the only choice we have is to look at what good could come of it. The people of God can actually turn their ear toward God. Mm -hmm. And we actually could turn our faces to the gospel message of Christ, that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the truths that we have in the gospel cannot be derailed by anything circumstantial that this world can give us. I really, really appreciate what you've shared because I think it is exactly in that combination of both deep, raw honesty about what is and not what we wish was, or that it's only about us when it's also always about the community, not only the Christian community, but the wider community. And it's about a fruit that is not meant just for people inside, as it were, the kingdom of God, but for the world and for the earth itself. And I think what you've just said is a magnificent expression of that. I'm just reminded of those statistics about, you know, a time when there really was a European plague, the Black Plague, middle 14th century or so. And the most amazing things I've ever heard written about that period was the way in which quite a disproportionate number of people who deliberately chose to stay in the cities were people who were Christians, who were serving the people who were in the process of dying from the Black Plague, knowing that they were exposing themselves to whatever they understood about the nature of germ transmission at that particular stage. But They were courageously staying there in a way that was a complete counterpoint to the panic of the culture. And I do think it's really always pertinent for Christian communities to be asking ourselves, of what are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Of whom are we afraid? And how does that calibrate not our only our fears, but even more our capacity to be able to sustain love in unexpected and challenging settings? Well, exactly. I mean, this truly, we are on here. I mean, we have the opportunity to either show what the gospel looks like in a world of crisis, or we don't. And I think about there's this verse that rings in my mind over and over again, because if I'm writing on one of the shorter books of the Bible, sometimes the first way I'll study it is to memorize it. Because I tell you, when you're starting to try to get every single word straight, every single phrase in its place, you talk about it getting deep in your marrow. Absolutely. I memorized the book of James as I was writing a Bible study on it. And one of the verses that rings in my mind constantly, and this is out of the NET, I read it, it says, think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. It's almost poetic. I'll say that again. Think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. We look back over our history. If, if many of you are like me, who talking to our listeners, I love biographies. We love to read about people who were brave and who, you know, just really honestly could have run, and they didn't. They hung in there, and they ministered. When the time came, and even if they just had a life that had been marked by cowardice, that when the time came, I mean, they just like, okay, I'm going to stay in here, and I'm going to try to be who God has called me to be. We look at those stories, and we think, man, what a blessed life. What a blessed life. What a blessed life. But we could not possibly read a really fabulous biography of one of our forefathers or foremothers in the faith, and it not be under crisis. It just, I don't know. I I, I don't know how many of them I've read. I I cannot think of one. And yet we go, man, what a life. Well, here we go, folks. This is what it looked like. It wasn't romantic. 
it hurt. It hurt their bodies. It bewildered them. We must have no uh, romantic thoughts if there was never any doubt. Is this the right thing? Does this look right? I don't even know what is happening around me. I don't know exactly what this is supposed to look like. They weren't supermen and superwomen. They were us. Right. They were people like us who have a choice Mm -hmm. when the world is turned upside down, whether or not to be the hands of Christ, whether we are going to go and hide or we're going to come out from under that bushel like he told us to, and we're going to be servants to people in need and people that need hope and people that need physical ministry, that need groceries dropped off because they can't leave their house. Right. We're about to have our opportunity here. Right. It's not going to be romantic. Right. Those people that were living great stories certainly didn't feel like it was great at the time. They felt like it was turned all upside down. Right. And that's what we have mm-hmm. in front of us right now. I remember a number of years ago hearing a fascinating interview with a guy who has two restaurants, in one in upstate New York and one in Manhattan. And he was from the West Coast in a much easier climate. And he moved deliberately to the East Coast because the climate was so much more severe and that it produced so much better vegetables than it does in a mild climate where the soil and the nutrients don't have to work against the climate in order to produce the fruitfulness, literally the savoriness and the sweetness of fruits and vegetables that would otherwise only be harvested. That's part of what you were saying earlier about vines flourishing and challenging and difficult conditions, not in ideal conditions. And what you've just said, Beth, I think is is such a a magnificent story and expression of what it is that we are called to. And the challenge, of course, is that we're never ready for such a challenge. We don't actually want to live that challenge. And then the question becomes, okay, we can easily and readily admit that. But are we only going to be interested in ourselves in the face of that challenge, or are we going to be interested in the concerns and needs of others as well? So both are legitimate, but they're not the same, and they both make demands on us, specifically as followers of Jesus. So thank you again, Beth, so much for what you've just said and for this whole conversation. I'm eager to have your listeners take advantage of this new book, Chasing Vines, and I also look forward to the next opportunity you and I have to have a conversation. I'm just really grateful for the courage that you regularly demonstrate and your desire to call people to Christ and to the deep study of the scriptures. So you do that in your own life, and you're certainly implicitly and explicitly calling the rest of us to do likewise. And I just feel very grateful for that. Well, so you, thank those, you. Those are words of grace, and I'm unworthy of them, but I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of us just having the courage uh, to follow him in the given moment. And so it was my great honor. Mark, thank you. I love your podcast. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu studio.